Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. You're listening to Killer. This is case number 17, The Golden State Killer, Part 10, The Original Night Stalker, Part 1. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. The Visalia Ransacker series started in the small town of Visalia, California in the early 1970s. The Ransacker worked his way up to over 100 ransackings and one murder. Shortly after escalating to murder, the Visalia Ransacker upped the ante and began committing a series of serial rapes. This rapist became quickly known throughout the community as the East Rapist, or EAR for short. The rapist began by attacking females while they were home alone after long bouts of stalking them. He would prowl neighborhoods and learn the habits of those in the surrounding homes before striking a victim. The victim's home was usually located near an open field, canalway, or some type of area where the rapist could easily escape unseen or blend in as a jogger or passerby. He would enter homes before attacking on many occasions, finding out as much as he could about the residents of the home. He would steal items from the home, usually of little street value, however. It may have been an object of sentimental value to the victim, such as a photograph of the victim, a driver's license, or their wedding band. He would wear a ski mask with only the eye holes cut out and likely homemade. He always wore gloves, and when he spoke, it was an angry whisper through clenched teeth. He was elusive, possibly using various vehicles, stolen bicycles, and tactical pathways to retreat once he was done torturing his victims. After the rapist amassed a large number of attacks, the area newspapers like the Sacramento Bee began reporting on his M.O. They began stating things such as, The rapist never strikes while a male is present. Being that the ear must have been following his own case in the news, he escalated immediately after these reports surfaced. He began attacking couples together, surprising them by shining a flashlight in their eyes, forcing the female to bind the male counterpart, 
Then, he would retie the male and bind the female. Finally, he would blindfold and gag most of his victims. When attacking a couple, he always had a gun rather than his usual knife. Sometimes, he would have entered the home prior to the attack and unloaded their own weapons. Then, play a game with them to see if they could challenge them to go for their gun while he was there. The ear would spend hours in the home, ransacking, eating their food, and raping. He got off more on the fear he could strike into his victims than anything else. At times, he would play to reports that he was a schizophrenic, talking to himself, and feigned sobbing and crying. The attacker would use silence as a torture technique, standing in a room quietly watching his victims until they began to try to get loose. Then he would make his presence known by touching or threatening them as soon as they moved. He was elusive, stealthy and cunning, but most of all, he was sick, tormented and disturbed. From June 1976 through July 1979, he had amassed at least 50 rapes and two murders. Then he stopped. October 1st. 1979, 5425 Queen Anne Lane, Santa Barbara, California. Goleta, California is a quiet small town near Santa Barbara. Around 2.30 a.m., a couple awoke to their bed violently shaking and a man standing at the end of it, repeatedly kicking it and saying, Don't move, motherfuckers, or I'll kill you. He told the couple repeatedly to get onto their stomachs. Using a very familiar script, the intruder told the couple all he wanted was money. He tossed nylon rope and twine to the female and told her to tie up her boyfriend. He tied her up after the boyfriend was secured. Then he retied the boyfriend's bindings as usual. The bindings were so tight that the boyfriend had no blood flow to his hands or feet. As he ransacked their bedroom, the intruder leaned over them and said, I'll kill you, you motherfuckers. The victims got a slight glimpse of what they thought was a man without a mask on, about 5'10", and had a holster on his right side. They also described his hair as dark with curly ends just above his collar. The intruder continued on repeating himself that all he wanted was money. I gotta have money, he would say. He told them after he got the money, he'd be gone and nobody would get hurt. The couple heard him wandering the home, opening drawers, doors, closets, and the like. He entered the bedroom after a short while, wearing his ski mask, this time. He pretended that he wanted the woman to escort him to her purse, as if he couldn't find it. He forced the woman to the living room floor, behind the couple's couch. He forced her down to the ground where she lay on her back. When he returned, he placed a pair of athletic shorts over her head. The woman, now nude with a pair of shorts over her head, could see a glimpse of a beaming light moving around the room. It was the intruder's flashlight moving up and down her body. He was rubbing himself at the same time. He stood over her just before walking away and he said, Now I'm going to kill you. Cut your throat. He was now heard in the kitchen rummaging around. She could hear him repeating himself over a dozen times. I'll kill him. I'll kill him. I'll kill him. Then she heard him go down the hallway to check on her boyfriend. The woman brazenly decided to make a run for it. Truly afraid she was going to die, she managed to get to her feet and hop to the front door. Her hands and feet were still bound, but she managed to escape her ankle bindings by hopping to the door. As you may recall, the rapist would keep ankle bindings loose on the women so he could remove them easily. The woman, still blindfolded, slammed against the wall. She frantically reached for the doorknob, grasping at it, trying to open it as fast as she could with her hands still tied. Finally, she got the door open and she made her way outside. As she ran, screaming across the yard, she wasn't able to see very well. She slammed smack into the side of her house. Her neighbor heard her slam into the side of the house. That's how hard she slammed into it. The intruder took after her. He grabbed her with his hand over her mouth and dragged her back inside. Prior to being caught, the boyfriend heard his girlfriend screaming. He thought she had been murdered and decided to make an escape. Although he was still bound, he made it out into the backyard where he was able to hop a gate and call for help. Not finding anyone able to assist, he hopped to a nearby citrus tree and hid in the shadows. 
The neighbor that happened to hear the woman slamming into her house was an off-duty FBI agent. He was up late at night enjoying a book near an open window, which faced the victim's house. Immediately, he called 911 after hearing the noise and screams. Then he grabbed his gun and rushed into action. After the assailant got the woman back into the home, he subdued her and placed her back on the floor in the same location behind the couch. Then he went to check on the boyfriend. As soon as he left her side, she was up again and out the door. She was screaming as loud as humanly possible as she made another run for it. The intruder had went outside of the bedroom to try to locate the boyfriend, but he didn't have time as the woman was already screaming again outside. The intruder determined it was time to split. He had lost complete control of the situation, which was uncommon for him. The FBI agent approached the home, and as he reached the driveway, he saw a man on a bicycle speed past him. He was not wearing a mask, but he had a dark gray and blue Pendleton plaid shirt, jeans, and tennis shoes. The cyclist headed west on Queen Anne Lane. The FBI agent hopped into his car and chased the suspect. The agent had trouble starting his car, but once it got going, he pursued the suspect. Making a correct guess, he turned down San Patricio and saw the cyclist. The cyclist hopped up onto the sidewalk, maintaining about a 200-yard lead on the car. He ditched the bike and his knife not long after hopping up on that sidewalk, and then he began hopping a fence into a backyard of a home. The agent did not pursue him as he knew he had backup coming, which was probably a wise decision. If you recall the incident on Ripon Court and the ear attacks, where the young boy was shot straddling the fence just as the ear had hopped it. The FBI agent returned home with the sheriff's deputy. They found his female neighbor nude and hysterical in the driveway. She had not been aware that the neighbor had chased a suspect. The bike that had been abandoned was traced back to the home of a U.S. parole officer who lived four to five blocks away on Via Bolzano. It was stolen earlier that evening from the officer's locked garage. Investigators found shoe prints, size 8.5 to 9, Adidas running shoes. So at the time of the attack, um, this is the first attack where the the East Area Rapist had moved south. So, you know, he started his string of attacks, of attacks um, in, the, in the north area of California and Sacramento. And he went quiet uh, for quite a while. And then he pops up down here in Southern California. Now, at the time, while this is going on, that connection has yet to be made. You know, nobody knows this is the East Area Rapist. So the connection hasn't quite been made yet. A lot of the authorities in the area thought it was a one-off attempted robbery that had just gone bad. So they didn't realize what they were dealing with at the time. And this would mark the second failed attack in a row. So if you remember from the last attack in the East Area Rapist series, the male confronts the East Area Rapist in the home before he has his mask all the way on, and then the woman escapes past him, and then the male passed him as well, and the guy was just kind of standing there like, what the heck? And then, you know, obviously he splits, and they never catch him. So what do you make of this? Two failed attacks in a row, on top of the fact that during the second one, it seems like he's more aggressive in talking about killing the victims. Well, I can see where the cops would think that it was just a failed robbery attempt because, like you said, it's two failed attacks in a row. And this guy, to this point, he's been so methodical. So, I mean, it's easy to have the perception of, you know, this is just a failed robbery attempt. This isn't the same guy. This guy has done this over 50 times already. You know, he has a very well-devised plan. He's methodical. He gets things done. And now this is another failed attack. So I can see where it would be easy to you know, to to think that it wasn't the same person, draw that correlation. But, I mean, to him 
standing there and repeating to himself, I think he was ready to kill them. Had it not gone sideways and they, they kept trying to escape and causing a commotion, I think he was psyching himself up to kill them. See, I don't, I don't think he was going to kill in this attack. I think he was in past uh, attacks during the year series when he would have a failure, a botched attack, or something like that, he would come back more aggressively the second time, like the immediate attack following, you know, I believe in one instance he hits the um, male victim in the head with his gun for no reason in that attack. He just walks up and just whacks him in the head. So I don't know, I'm not convinced he was going to kill anybody here, even though he says over a dozen times, you know, I'll kill him, I'll kill him, I'll kill him, I'll kill him. Um, I don't necessarily think he was going to. I think he was really just trying to get himself or the victims psyched out. Like he needed to get their sense of fright and terror amped up a notch. You know, he he got off on that. And I don't necessarily believe he was there to to murder anybody. I think he was there to to continue his spree of rapes. That could be. I mean, he could have been trying to psych him out. We know he thrives on terror, so maybe he's thinking about his last failed attack and what happened. And he's thinking to himself, if I continually repeat to them in a angry or forceful tone that I'm going to kill them, maybe they're going to lay down and, you know, not try to fight back. That could could be something that simple. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, and then once this this woman felt like, you know, I'm done for if I lay here, she, I mean, I can't believe how brazen she was. Um, I had put a post up on Instagram uh couple weeks ago asking you know would you fight back against this guy like if you knew if i mean you don't know who he is or anything you know same situation though all things equal you don't know who this guy is and he's in your house doing the the same stuff right would you fight back and most people said um yeah they would and then there were a lot of people who honestly said no and the one one woman responded and said if my child is in the home with me i'm fighting and I think that's the attitude of a lot of people if if they have a chance. You know, the one thing to remember here is dude enters your house with a gun and you don't even know he's in your room until you're awake and he's standing right next to you. Like you've you've already lost. You know, what are you going to do? You're not going to, you know, most people aren't going to try and get up from that situation. Now, when he leaves the room, when there's opportunities that present themselves, like when he's ransacking, going to get dishes, that kind of stuff. Maybe you try and get loose real quick, but I don't know how long you had. I would like to think I would fight back, but I don't know about you. It it all comes down to the situation. You make a great point. He wakes most people up out of a dead sleep. How many people are woken up out of a dead sleep and can do a 180, have an adrenaline rush, and be prepared to attack somebody or fight back or defend themselves? I'm going to say not a whole lot. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just speaking for myself and personal experience, but I mean I have had the shit scared out of me when I'm dead asleep and you wake up and you're instant bang snap adrenaline, you know what's going on? I mean we we had that situation at our house that we just moved into, uh, probably about a year after we moved in, and there was an incident. We have a medical facility not too far from us where a guy had broken in and he went in there and just destroyed the place. And come to find out. This dude was on bath salts, just completely out of his mind. And then shortly after that, I mean, I, it was not related because the guy was arrested, but shortly after that, there was a rash of people going around tapping on windows. And I think they were seeing if people were home because they were stealing stuff out of garages. And my son came out frantically one night because he said he heard somebody tapping on his window. 
I mean, instantly right then, I'm ready to go. When my son comes to me at at that time, he would have only been 10, 11 years old, you know, scared out, scared out of his mind. And, and I'm not going to lie to you. I, we have a safe under our bed and I got my nine millimeter out and I walked outside because if there had been somebody in a fucking hood, you know, doing creepy shit, banging on my windows, <laughs> he might've went home with a little more lead in him than I'm, I'm not boasting. I'm not, you know, trying to talk myself up, but you don't do that shit. Well, no, I mean, and there's something that happens to a person when your family needs to be protected. You'll do anything at all costs. We've had similar situations here where before I had installed security cameras, you could hear some what sounded like some crazy stuff going on outside. I don't think it was actually anything, but it sounded like something. So first thing you do, get your gun, head downstairs, listen, go peek outside, go look around the various areas outside, make sure that your home is secured. And then you go about your business. But yeah, I I mean, I've been in similar situations a few times. We've come home from being out a couple times and there was some strange noise going on. Come to find out later on, I think we had a raccoon living outside our garage near our garbage cans, but it sounded like it was in the home and it didn't make like a growling or hissing sound. It was making like scratching noises and stuff and like banging sounds. So it sounded like something was in the home when we had come back, you know, in similar situation. What do you do? You go in the house or do you hang out? You know, like what what do you do? Because 99.999% of the time, that's absolutely nothing, but you're just extra cautious in that situation. So in that situation, yeah, you're definitely ready to fight back. But back to, back to what I was saying, if, if somebody's in your house, and just wakes you up out of a complete dead sleep, you're, you're in no position to defend yourself or, you know, be the aggressor at that point. So, you know, it's, it's all situational. It's all, you know, what's happening? How did it happen? How ready are you when you wake up? Yeah, I agree. December 30th, 1979, 767 Avenida Pequena, Galeta, Santa Barbara. It had now been Five months since the East Area Rapist had struck in Northern California. The neighborhood pest had gone dormant before and seemed to be doing much the same. However, after one botched attack in Southern California in October, a second attack would soon take place. A couple, both doctors, an orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Robert Offerman, age 44, and recently divorced psychologist, Dr. Alexandria Manning, age 35, lived in a condo complex on Avenida Pequena. Next door sat an empty condo. A prowler lurking would pry the screen from the empty condo next door to the doctor's condo and would stay there for a period of time until the couple next door had fallen asleep. The couple went to bed and the prowler pried the back patio door jam. Aluminum siding peeled back. It is believed that the intruder approached the couple from the doorway and woke them up and went through his usual binding ritual. As the intruder awoke them, Dr. Manning shoved her jewelry down behind the headboard of the bed. The couple were bound using his signature diamond knot and using nylon and twine ties. At some point, it is believed that Dr. Offerman got free from his bindings and attempted to confront the intruder. Unlike the last few attacks, the assailant would not let this one get out of control. He put a shot into the chest of Dr. Offerman. Offerman spun around and was met with three more bullets in his back. He fell to the floor in a kneeling position, his backside sticking up in the air. Neighbors heard the shots. It was one single shot, silence for a moment, then three more shots in rapid succession. A few moments later, they heard a single gunshot, making that five total shots fired. The only neighbor that bothered to do anything reported the shots were fired around 3.05 a.m. 
After they woke up from the grogginess, they looked out their window which overlooked the Offerman condo. They saw an open patio sliding door with just a screen shut. No lights were on in the home. Moments later, the couple noticed a white, boxy car without headlights on leaving a common parking lot. It was 3.17 a.m. Investigators arrived and found the bodies of Dr. Offerman and Manning. Manning suffered an execution-style gunshot wound to the back of the head lying face down, hands bound behind her back. Offerman had one ligature on his left wrist. The offender had ransacked the home and ate food in their kitchen. Investigators found that same type of twine that was used to bind his victims all over the neighborhood in four separate locations, including neighboring patios and trails. A rash of burglaries happened in the neighborhood during the weeks leading up to this event. A lot of stolen items which had little value were taken, similar to the ear VR cases covered extensively to this point. The same night around 10.15 p.m., a couple returning home from a movie saw a person run out of their living room and into their backyard. They hopped a fence into the yard of Mountain View School. Nothing was taken, however, their dog's left eye was injured. It's good to note here that a dog in Rancho Cordova was injured on its left side as well during the near attack. This home was around a mile away from the Offerman residence. The shoe impressions around the fence of the yard was a match to those found at the murder scene. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., so after these couple attacks take place, Detective Richard Shelby from the Sacramento area, he gets a load of these reports in January of 1980. So he and Sergeant Bevins, you know, they kind of go back and forth on a number of things. And so Bevins brings the reports and there was another lieutenant, I believe Lieutenant Ray Root. They're kind of having a discussion amongst themselves internally. Like, is this the East Area Rapist? Did he move south? And so uh, after reading the reports, Bevins didn't think it was the East Area Rapist. And uh, he thought it was someone else. And the reason he thought it was someone else was because of the way that the, the ear had lost control. So he's thinking... You know, hey, this guy lost control of this situation, which never happens for him. He doesn't lose control. He's always in control. But Shelby intelligently made a list and he said, here's all the similarities and here's all the dissimilarities. And there were so many similarities that the small dissimilarities in the list made him believe it was the East Area Rapist. And so I thought that was a pretty interesting and keen observation all the way back in 1980. These offenses happened in the latter part of 1979, so October and December. And now it's 1980, and, you know, so it's pretty recent and fresh off these attacks, and they're already piecing it together. So according to to, uh, Shelby, reading his book, Hunting a Psychopath, he's already connecting these dots 
right after these first two attacks. And so you also lost in that shuffle is the first really what would be, I would say, intentional murders, you know, of two people during uh, a rape. You know, like he was in there doing his usual rituals, his bindings and doing all those things. And he comes in here, loses a little bit of control. Bam, just takes him out right there. He'd already decided, like, you know, based on the way that we think it went down. You know, obviously no one was there to prove this is how it went down. But it's believed that Offerman got up and tried to fight. Ear took him down. And at that point, he executed Manning, who was lying there. And there were no rapes that took place in this case. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's definitely a huge turning point. He lost control in the last two attacks. And now we come up to this attack and he's obviously has told himself if if things seem like they're getting out of hand, these people are dead. That He's flipped that switch. Yeah. And I think like you, you know, we talked about in the last attack, you know, and he's really threatening to kill people, but he's had two botched attacks in a row. And really, this is a third botched attack. I mean, he murders these two people because he lost control again three times in a row. Right. But just to be clear, it's a botched attack in the in the sense of if he was just there to rape them and burglarize them, we don't know for sure his intention was to kill them, you know, yeah. right away. Or he was going to murder them in the end if he went through his, you know, his normal two-hour ritual of tying them up and torturing and raping and this and that. He just, you know, point blank, things got out of control and he shot him dead. Well, what do you think? Do you think he was there strictly to do his usual raping and ransacking, or do you think he was going to murder them anyway? It's hard to say. Now, at this point, now that he's, deci- now that he's decided that if things get out of control, he's going to kill them. We We have no eyewitness, you know, statements telling us what he was doing, what they heard, or what they observed, you know, normally they're blindfolded, but they hear him saying crazy things, and what he's doing around the house, it's hard to say. I I think it's just a case of he flipped that switch. If if things go south, his gun's ready to go, and he's going to kill him. Yeah, and I'm still not necessarily convinced that he was there to murder yet. I think he might have been there to do his usual raping and ransacking. I think he was just ready to be more violent to make sure to keep everybody in line. But in this case, Dr. Offerman got loose. Like he was a threat as soon as he got up to the intruder. So in this case, I still don't necessarily think he was there for murder. And maybe he would have at the end. I think he was primarily there though, at least to to ransack, rape and torture them. Yeah, right. Well the one interesting thing is, you know, he's all about being stealthy in these attacks. And we know that he's been thrown off from, you know, outside noise interfering with an attack. We covered that one attack where there were teenage kids outside of the home or duplex or wherever the location was. And they basically that caused him to freak out a little bit and abort the attack. But now when you, you introduce a gun into a situation and you fire five shots in a home, somebody's going to hear it and you're going to have to abort and get the hell out of there right away. If you want to remain on the loose to do whatever you want, you fire five shots, you're going you're gonna to be turning tail and getting out of there so you don't get caught because you know, you know, the percentage or the chances of somebody hearing that and calling the cops greatly goes up. Yeah. And you make a great point. And something that I haven't really touched on yet is that the homes where he's doing these things are still very similar to the ones that he was doing up in the 
Sacramento area. So he's got some sort of ditch or canal way type of structure to navigate to get away. Like, you know, he's still following that similar geography that he was using up in Sacramento. So he still does a lot of those kinds of homes where they're near something like a canal way or whatever, where he can get in there and get out relatively unnoticed. So he's still he's still using that strategy, which still seems to be working because, you know, after he fires five shots in this home, no one's no one found him. You know, he was gone. And, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting in that regard that he still continued the same method for choosing homes in certain neighborhoods, even when he was way far away from where his original cluster of attacks had started. So, yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those things. Um, He's still able to be stealthy enough to prowl. He sat in that condo next door, you know, for some time and just kind of hung out there and waited for them to go to bed, which is really creepy. Even though that it's escalated to this point where he's murdered two people and things apparently were getting ready to get out of hand for a third time, he's still doing his homework. You know, that's apparent based on the location, based on him hiding out next door in an empty home. We've had a number of attacks where we've described that that's, you know, that's potential the potential thing to happen because there's homes for sale close by and he's used those as a location to just hide out. Yeah. I like what you did there with the homework tie-in. That was nice. Wasn't intentional. Wasn't thinking that way, but hey. (laughs) You're supposed to take, I was setting you up to take credit for it, dude. (laughs) (laughs) All right. March 13th, 1980, 753 High Point Drive, Ventura, California. Lyman Smith was a prominent lawyer and was expecting to be appointed to a judgeship in the near future. He was married to Charlene Smith, a beautiful woman who made and sold her own jewelry, and was also an interior decorator. She was once Lyman's secretary and eventually his second wife. On the day of March 16, 1980, Lyman's 12-year-old son Gary arrived at the home of his father. Gary and his siblings lived with their mother Marjorie, Lyman's first wife and high school sweetheart. They were just a few blocks away from each other. Gary went to a door to get into the home that Charlene would leave open for the gardeners. However, it was locked. Then he went over to the front door and found a stack of newspapers piling up. He tried opening the front door, and sure enough, it was unlocked. As Gary entered the home, he noticed some things were out of place, including the couch cushions, which were, which was odd, considering that Charlene kept the place immaculate. Gary continued on, heading into the master bedroom. He saw what looked like two people lying under the covers of their bed. He hesitated a moment, deciding if he wanted to wake his father. Gary decided to go in and pull the covers back, only to reveal the head and shoulders of his father. His father was laying on his stomach, and even in the darkness of the room, he could see Lyman's head had been smashed in. Gary left the room and dialed 911. When police arrived, Gary was sitting on the porch waiting for them. Investigators went into the home and found the couch cushions had been out of sorts, as well as a mattress in the spare bedroom had been disturbed. Police uncovered the bodies on the bed. Lyman had been bound at the wrist and ankles using a drapery cord. Charlene was lying on her back wearing a t-shirt. She too had been bludgeoned. Lying at the foot of the bed was a wood log, which came from a woodpile just outside the bedroom window. The log was covered with blood as well as a wall above the couple's heads. The knots used to bound Charlene were diamond knots, a rare knot used at sea or interior decorating. The investigators also uncovered that Charlene had been bound with a different drapery cord than Lyman. Hers was fancier. There was a lot of speculation in this case as to whether or not the use of the fancy knot and more stylish bindings were a symbol in the murder of Charlene. The investigators would also uncover that there were fibers of unknown origin on his ankles. The couple was determined to have been murdered on March 13th, which lined up with the stack of papers and milk delivered to the home, yet undisturbed. 
Investigators found that Charlene and Lyman had been intimate that night. However, she had also been raped. There were a lot of theories that were floated around after the murders. Were they killed by someone they knew? It seemed quite a passionate way to be murdered. Investigators looked into the business associate and friend of Lyman, Bud Sloan. They had a failed investment together, but he was later cleared. Charlene and Lyman's marriage apparently wasn't too stable, as Charlene had been seeing someone during their marriage. Richard Atwood, a former sheriff deputy turned polygrapher. She didn't tell Richard she was married for a long time, but he eventually found out. Charlene was seen to be into status, and so it was a bit odd that she would cheat with a person that was in a lower status than her current husband, an attorney. The pair had a rocky relationship from 1977 to 1978, and at one point, Charlene filed for divorce from Lyman. But Lyman finally won her back and promised that he would seek a judgeship in the near future. Atwood claimed that Charlene did come to see him hours before she was murdered. He also said that she was going to leave Lyman for him regardless of his judgeship status. Atwood openly admitted that they were still lovers and even admitted to watching their house from binoculars that evening from his office in the tallest building in Ventura. He also admitted to driving by their home that night and that he tried calling her on Sunday morning. Eventually, he was cleared and he was never charged. Joe Alsip was a partner of Lyman's in several of Lyman's strange business dealings. There was a theory that he was angry at Lyman for their failed business dealings. They found his fingerprint on a drinking glass in the home, and he admitted to being there that night. Investigators knew he had lost a lot of money and blamed Lyman for his losses. Alsip was arrested almost two years after the murders based on his supposed confession to a local clergyman. However, police didn't have enough evidence against him, and he was released. The clergyman's credibility was shattered, and that was the last of Alsip's connections to the murder. At this time, no one connected the murders in Galetta to the murders in Ventura. Yeah, so there's a couple things going on here. Um, you know, Charlene was, you know, apparently into status, and so she was, you know, people kind of described her as a gold digger, I guess. And, you know, I don't know how true that is, but it seems like she wasn't, she didn't have the most flattering reviews, if you will, when reading about her. And uh, so it seemed like she was really into status and, you know, class and money and those kinds of things. And Lyman was, he was into, you know, he was an attorney and he was a prominent attorney, but he also was into weird business dealings, uh, like one of which was he was into a, a business venture where they would ship, I believe it was cows from here to the Shah of Iran. <laughs> and had this company that would do this, but it eventually failed because um, of all the conflict happening in, in Iran at the time. And uh, and so, you know, there was just weird dealings like that. And he would spend a lot of time in New York at one point for another business dealing. And that's when I think Charlene started really running around on him because, you know, he wasn't home and she needed attention, apparently. You know, there's a lot to unpack there. And there was a lot of people speculating because of the status of this couple, you know, like what happened? Was there a a crime of passion here? Was there a spurned lover in her past? Was there a business dealing that had gone bad for Lyman and the person lost a lot of money and needed to murder him, you know, because he felt like he screwed him over or something? You know, there's a lot of that and a lot of speculation. It was very tabloidy to try and figure out why and you know what happened like why did they need to murder these people and so you know there was a lot of time spent slinging mud essentially <laughs> between people in their inner circles so it was kind of interesting the other thing that 
you know, people thought about was this diamond knot. So this diamond knot, it's that fancy knot. It's used in interior decorating. It's used at sea. It's been used in a few of the other year attacks. And I believe in the start of the ones down here in Southern California. And so they start trying to look at this knot and, and the cord that was used to bound her was like a fancier, nicer cord. And, you know, was it a symbol? You know, was it something, you know, she was this woman who was into interior design and decorating and all of those kinds of things. Was it something that they used against her to show like some sort of symbolism about the, the murder? You know, I thought that was kind of interesting. They were really reading into this. What did you, what did you make of it? The only piece of evidence that seems to tie into the other murder was the knot that's been used. I mean, we've, we've referenced that several times, but yeah, like you said, this guy had a lot of weird things going on and I'm sure it made the investigation that much more difficult with all the mudslinging and all the shady business dealings and clergyman's credibility. I mean, it, it it's easy to see how this wouldn't be, you know, tied back to the ear or, you know, at this point we're talking about the original Night Stalker, but wasn't a lot of information there pulling back to the just the diamond knot it sounds like yeah and uh he murdered this couple using a log from their wood pile so like you were making reference to in the last murder murders i should say where he shot them you know in this case he goes and opts for the log which was bludgeoning someone you've got to be pretty damn angry to bludgeon someone to death you know yeah, no 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 kidding. What do you, what do you think prompted him to to take that more personal attack? I mean, we covered that point that he did end up raping her. That was proven that she was raped as well, even though she had she had had intercourse with, you know, Lyman earlier that night. She had still been determined to be raped. Do you think something happened during that attack that triggered him to go outside and get the log and come back in and finish him off? I don't. I think um what I, my speculation is in the previous attacks of the Mannings, he, well, I'm sorry, it's of Dr. Offerman and, and Deborah Manning, sorry. In that attack, he, it turned to murder. I think in this attack, he had gotten off on the murder and decided that this was the way. He had lost control three times in a row. It escalated into murder. And I think he, he spent a lot of time probably thinking about how can I murder somebody? without making too much of a racket and in a way that would satisfy his urges because apparently strangling somebody's not good enough. You know, he could have done that, but he wanted to beat them senseless. So he, this man has a lot of rage inside to, first of all, to do all of the stuff he's done to this point, which is just incredibly epic. I mean, when you step back and like, look at everything that the guy's done, but he gets to this point and he decides, you know, I'm murdering everybody, you know, like I'm not leaving people alive anymore. And so it seems to me that it made that natural progression from the fear and terror all the way to murder. And that's what would get his rocks off. You make a great point there because through all of the ear attacks that we, we covered in great detail, there were several occasions where the victim would say he did not appear to be aroused. Was he losing interest in just the rape part? And then he shoots Offerman and Manning, and he realizes to himself, wow, I really enjoyed that. You know, coming from the mind of somebody that's sick enough to ransack 100 homes, rape 51 people, 
attack them in their homes with their loved ones right there. And at that point, he's still not getting satisfied. But now after, you know, shooting those two victims, maybe, like I said earlier, maybe that's the trigger. Maybe he's like, man, I really like that. But how can I do this and be more stealthy about it? How can I do this and, you know, not draw as much attention to the home? Well, it even even almost seems like, how can I do this and it not be so quick? You know, bludgeoning somebody isn't necessarily like a long process, but shooting somebody is very, you know, boom, boom, you're done. Like, you have to get up and impersonal with somebody, you know, sorry, up and personal with somebody and bludgeon them. You know what I mean? Like, you had to be on them to do that. And uh, that just might be something that he he wanted to make it more intimate in a really sick and twisted way. You know what I mean? No, I completely and totally agree. I, th- I think that that's exactly why he d- he chose that route. And the first available thing to him that he saw, you know, breaking into that home, he probably saw that wood pile outside and thought to himself, if I'm killing them tonight, I'm going to grab a piece of this wood and that's what I'm going to do it with. And I'm going to beat him to death with my bare hands. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, he got off on that fear and terror of his victims and just being able to bludgeon them to death, I think for him was another way to witness that fear and terror and like get off on it. You know what I mean? Like just to him, I think that was like his ultimate adrenaline rush. No, I completely agree. I mean, obviously there is something up close and intimate there and I have no idea how long it takes to beat somebody to death with a piece of firewood, but I have to imagine that it's a very intense, very physical type of attack. And like you said, I I think his adrenaline reached the ultimate high there during that attack and during that murder is and, and he was like to himself after everything was said and done and he had left the house i can only imagine that he was probably thinking you know and maybe he already had it scoped out he's very methodical like i said about planning his attacks maybe he already knew who the next victim was but he was probably already reveling in the fact that man that was great from a sick and twisted mind of somebody that could do that to him that was probably the could be to that point one of the greatest single achievements he's done in all these attacks and he's ready to do the next one already 100 percent. on that note join us next week as we cover part 11 of the golden state killer series part two of the original night stalker stay safe